Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. We're going to be looking at chapters 13 and 14 this morning. Last week, we talked about how the Israelites set out from Mount Sinai after being there for about a year. They immediately began complaining again. They complained about the harshness of living in the desert. They complained about the manna. And Miriam and Aaron complained about Moses' leadership. They finally arrived in the desert of Paran, just south of the Promised Land, where they engage in the ultimate rebellion. And that brings us up to today. Let's read chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Let's pray. Lord, remove our distractions, give us discernment, and open our hearts and minds to your word this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice that these were not just random Israelites. Verse 3 says they were leaders of the Israelites, which probably means they were among the 70 chosen leaders we talked about last week. I'm not going to read all the names in verses 4 to 15, except to point out that the leader from Ephraim was Joshua, son of Nun, and the leader from Judah was Caleb, son of Jephunneh. So both Joshua and Caleb were among the spies sent into the Promised Land. The spies' instructions in verses 17 to 20 were to see if the land was fertile or poor, if the people were many or few, if they were strong or weak, and if the cities were walled or unwalled. And if possible, they were to bring back samples of the fruit. So the twelve explored the land for 40 days, traveling 250 miles north and 250 miles south back to their camp. They brought back pomegranates, figs, and a branch of grapes so long, two men had to carry it on a pole. The leaders then gave their report to Moses and the people. The land does flow with milk and honey, they said in verse 27. But the rest of their report was negative. They said in verses 28 and 29, The people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites lived there in the sea along the Jordan. The consensus of the group was that the people were powerful and the cities are large and fortified, meaning that some of the cities had strong walls like Jericho, for example. The implication was that taking this land was futile. They had come all this way and suffered so much for so long, all for nothing. But Joshua and Caleb broke with the consensus. Verse 30 says, Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Of course they could do it. 
God had promised this land to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. And they were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They just needed to believe God. But the others didn't see it that way. In effect, they said, we can't defeat them. Their cities are large, impenetrable fortresses. Their people are as big as Michael Jordan. They've got 50 caliber machine guns and F-35 fighters and B-2 bombers. Well, okay, I may be exaggerating a bit. But one scholar suggests that the spies made it sound like Canaan was a Jurassic Park filled with human sauruses. Verses 31 to 33, the rebels argued that the people were not only stronger, but were so large, they said, we're like grasshoppers compared to them. That's hyperbole or overstatement, of course. It's like if a visiting high school football team showed up in Randolph and their front line was all 6'5 and weighed over 300 pounds each. We might say, those guys are monsters. Verse 33 says, we saw the Nephilim there. Now, the only other time we read about Nephilim in the Bible is in Genesis 6, 4. But those Nephilim were all destroyed in the flood. The Nephilim way back in Noah's time were apparently thought to be giants. It's likely that any very tall people in Moses' time were just called Nephilim, even though they were not direct descendants. Kind of like someone today might call someone a Neanderthal. That doesn't mean they were related to Neanderthals. It's just because they're primitive like Neanderthals. Archaeologists who have dug up ancient graves believe the average height of men in the ancient world was about 5'9". If they came up against an army of Nephilim, let's imagine as big as Shaquille O'Neal at 6 feet or 7 feet 1 inch. You can see how they might feel like grasshoppers. In chapter 14, we find that the people ignored Caleb and Joshua and listened to the other spies instead. Chapter 14, verses 2 to 4 say, All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land, only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Joshua and Caleb then plead with the people, trying to convince them how good the land was and how God would surely give it to them. They conclude in verse 9 saying, Only do not rebel against the Lord. and Do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the people wouldn't listen. In verse 10, the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Verse 10 continues, Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. In verse 11, The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me, in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? Wait a minute. Refused to believe in him? Of course they believed in God. They saw all the signs. 
They saw him part the Red Sea. They saw his power manifested on Mount Sinai. They experienced his miraculous feeding and watering in the desert for an entire year. They also experienced his judgment. In verse 3, they even admitted that the Lord had been leading them. How could God say they refused to believe in him? The answer is that the kind of believing in this verse is not just intellectually believing in God's existence. The book of James tells us that even the demons do that. The kind of belief God is talking about in this verse is a belief that has no other gods before God and that submits to God and obeys out of a heart of loving devotion. Having a heart of dedication or devotion to God resulting in obedience was what it meant to believe. That is exactly the same thing believing means in the New Testament. So God again tests Moses by threatening to destroy the Israelites and by giving the land to Moses' descendants. In verse 12, God tells Moses, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Now, to tell you the truth, if I were in Moses' place with rumors that the people were going to stone me, and God said, I'm going to destroy them and give the promised land to you, I, might, I think I might have said, okay, Lord, that sounds like a good plan to me. But in verses 13 to 19, Moses argues with God, saying that if you kill all the people, the Egyptians will hear about it, and the people of Canaan will hear about it, and say, in verse 16, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the promised land, the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Today, we in the church automatically think of one God who is all-powerful. But that's not how people thought back then. They thought of numerous gods who had varying degrees of power. Moses is saying, Lord, the people of Egypt and Canaan will think you're just an inferior and failed God, that you weren't able to do what you set out to do. Isn't it interesting that Moses was more concerned about God's glory or reputation than he was about his own glory or even his own safety? Moses had no other gods before God. Moses was completely dedicated to God. So in verse 19, Moses pleads, In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. So in verse 20, the Lord does forgive them, in the sense that he does not abandon his promise to give Abraham's descendants the promised land. Their children will still inherit the promised land. He also forgives them in the sense that he does not end all of their lives immediately. They will be allowed to live out the rest of their lives in the wilderness. According to verse 37, the only, only the ten faithless spies would die immediately. But there would be consequences, severe consequences. In verses 29 to 35, God says that their children will be shepherds in this wilderness for 40 years. One year for every day they spent in the promised land. And after everyone over 20 years, and everyone over 20 years old will die in that desert. Only Joshua and Caleb will survive to enter it, along with the Israelite children who were currently under 21.
Now, back in verse 2, the Israelites had said, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. God's judgment is to give them exactly what they asked for, dying in the wilderness. That being the case, God then told them specifically not to enter the promised land. In verse 25, God tells them to turn back tomorrow and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. But sure enough, verses 39 to 43 say that the very next day the people confessed their sin and said, now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Wait, what? God just told you not to go? And you're going to do the exact opposite? They supposedly confessed their sin of rebellion, and they're now going to demonstrate it by rebelling even more? Their confession was a fake, a farce, a phony. In verses 41 and 42, Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up, because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. But in their rebellion, the people wouldn't listen. They pressed forward, thinking they could take the land by their own military power. After only a day or so earlier, passionately arguing that they were not powerful enough to take it even with God's help. These rebellious people were just as irrational as those who say that what grows in a mother's womb is a baby if they want it, but nothing more than a clump of cells if they don't want it. So they attacked the promised land in direct defiance of God's command and were soundly defeated, just as God said. So what do we learn from this passage? Well, first, the book of Numbers was written about 40 years or so after Israel rebelled against God by refusing to take the land God had promised to them. Numbers, 14, Numbers was written after all those over 20 had died. Numbers was written to their children, who are now full-grown. And the main point of this passage is a warning to those children. Do not rebel against God like your parents did. Go in and take the land God promised to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The application to us is that God has revealed himself to us in his word. Do not rebel against him. If you are in rebellion against God, repent of your rebellion. And have no other gods before God. Love God, Father, Son, and Spirit with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. A second lesson is that the majority is not always right. Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb stood alone against the thousands of Israelites. The four of them were right, and the thousands were wrong. There is an old children's song that says, Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. One of the lessons of this passage is to dare to stand for God and his word, even if it means standing against the culture and crowds that try to get you to go along. And finally, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to look at chapter 
3, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. The writer of Hebrews 3 refers back to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness and preaches on it. Starting in Hebrews 3, 17, it says, And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? <coughs> Whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So Hebrews says that the Israelites could not enter the promised land because of disobedience. But the conclusion in the next verse, verse 19, surprises us. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So which is it? They couldn't enter because of disobedience or because of unbelief? The answer is both. Faith, or believing in God, was not just about believing God existed. It was about having no other gods before God and dedicating their lives to Him. Such true dedication or faith would always result in obedience, not rebellion. Now, that doesn't mean they would be perfect. God had established sacrifices for atone for their sins committed in weakness. But their willful, unrepentant rebellion demonstrated their total lack of faith or devotion toward God. When the New Testament uses words like repentance, faith, or believing in Jesus, the same idea is involved. Saving faith is not just believing what God says he will do, as the children's song says. It is not just trusting that God will take us to heaven. Jesus said over and over again that if you love him, you will keep his commandments. Paul writes about an obedience that comes from faith. Our obedience will never be perfect this side of heaven, of course, but neither will it be unrepentant defiance like the Israelites. True faith is about a spirit-produced, loving devotion to God that makes a difference in how we live. The Israelites' continued, willful, unrepentant rebellion demonstrated that they didn't have that kind of faith or belief. And that's why Hebrews says they couldn't enter because of disobedience and unbelief. I keep hammering on this in part because I think I was misled in some churches when I was growing up. Some of the churches I went to gave long, drawn-out, emotionally manipulative invitations to convince people that if they would just walk the aisle and say the prayer, they would be saved eternally, even though their lives never changed. The idea was that if you make a decision for Jesus, we hope you'll follow through with obedience and discipleship, but if not, at least you're saved and have your fire insurance. No. True believing or faith has to do with a changed heart, a heart attitude that hates your sinful rebellion against God and devotes your life to Jesus Christ alone as your ultimate ruler and king. When we turn our hearts and lives over to Jesus, we're not just making a one-time decision. We are enlisting in a lifetime of service to the one who is over all kings and queens, emperors and dictators, presidents and prime ministers, constitutions and countries. If we have no sincere desire to obey and follow our king, we are really not in his army at all. 
I keep hammering on this because I want you to be able to share it accurately with others. And because I never know when someone here may need to commit their life to Jesus. And by the way, the New Testament way of demonstrating your new allegiance to the king is by baptism. Let's pray. Lord, give us the opportunity and the courage to share your good news with others. And if anyone here has not committed their heart and life to you, please convict them of their rebellion and draw them to yourself. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.